0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles this morning, uh, first of all, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We are starting a new sermon series this morning here at New Life. Having been through Genesis for a few months, we're going to... um, Take some time now to consider uh, the task of prayer. And so um, our sermon series is called Prayer, Taking Hold of God. I don't seem to have a clicker, and here's Nate. He's on it, read my mind. Thank you, Nate. Prayer, Taking Hold of God. We're going to spend the next seven weeks considering... Uh, what the scriptures say to us about prayer. We're going to be looking at various passages in the Old and the New Testament, and uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to my own heart. Uh, Prayer is um, something that you've all had some experience with, I'm hoping, Uh, and if you have uh, done so, you probably share with me this kind of feeling about prayer that it's uh, kind of a peculiar thing because it is so easy and yet so hard at the same time. Um, <laughs> prayer, think about it, is so easy. Um, prayer is something you can do anywhere. Prayer is something you can do anytime. Prayer is something that does not um, really require a whole lot of you. You don't have to have any particular skill or intelligence or education. Uh, You don't have to have a spiritual gift. Um, You don't really even have to be able to speak, quite frankly, in order to pray. So prayer is very easy in one sense, but in another sense, prayer is just so hard, isn't it? One of the evidences of the fact that prayer is so hard is that we do it so little. Um, Now, there are various reasons why we don't pray as much as we should, and we're all very busy people, and some of us busier than others. If you're a mother and father raising small children, I know that schedules get super busy, and I can only imagine how hard it is to find time to pray when you're raising young children. But here's the fact is that even when we do have time to pray, we're slow to do it. <laughs> we do get time every now and then. Schedules open up, and yet there's always something else to do. There's one more thing. There's always some duty, some task, something calling to you to take you away from that urging, that prompting that you sense to go to the Lord in prayer. And I just want you to know that this is my struggle also. Uh, I share with you in the struggle to be a persistent praying person. And one of the reasons why I think that prayer is so hard is because we're talking about spiritual warfare here. Real spiritual warfare is not really taking place at the political level. It's not really taking place at the cultural level so much as it is taking place when you are seeking to get on your knees before God. That's where real spiritual warfare is taking place. A guy named Stephen Chadwick said this, "...the devil fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray." He doesn't want us to pray. He wants to keep us off of our knees, And that seems to me a plausible explanation for why, when we have time and when we know it's so easy, we still so often don't go to prayer. So we're going to start this sermon series this morning with what I'm calling the model prayer as a prayer given to us in uh, actually two places in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. The Lord's Prayer is um, the prayer that Jesus gave to us on the Sermon on the Mount And uh, again, uh, given to us in two different places, we're going to read both of those accounts, the account of Matthew and the account of Luke this morning. We're going to start here in Matthew, so you can please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a paperback Bible in front of you, underneath one of the chairs. This is on page 473 of the paperback Bible. We'll switch over to Luke here in just a moment. But this is on page 473, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 13. Again, this is a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, Matthew 6 verse 5, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 5-13. Let's skip over to the book of Luke. This is on page 507 of the paperback Bibles, Luke 11. And I'll read the first four verses. <clears throat> this is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11:1 1-4, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Father, we do call on you by your spirit to open our hearts and minds, to behold wonderful things in your word, and to make us a praying people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. And just stay there in Luke for right now. We'll turn back to Matthew here in a moment. So three things that I want to consider here this morning. Um, And the first is just this, just picking up kind of from where I left off in the introduction, about the difficulty of prayer. I want to see what this passage says to us here about the difficulty of prayer. So the passage begins here in Luke 11, verse 1 telling us that Jesus was praying in a certain place. So there's the first thing you should take note of when you think about prayer is note that Jesus himself, our Savior, the Lord of the universe, was a praying man. So if Jesus needed to pray, I think you and I do also. Jesus was praying. This was his habit. The Gospels tell us this in many instances, that He would go to his father in prayer. So the disciples see him praying. They notice this. And so there at the end of verse 1, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to do what you're doing. Now, I think this is pretty interesting um, because we don't get any other instance recorded for us in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to do anything. I mean, think of some of the things that they witnessed. Um, They saw Jesus casting out demons, but they don't say, Jesus, teach us how to do that. They saw Jesus walk on water, but they don't say, Jesus, teach us how to walk on water. That would be cool. Teach us how to do that. They don't say, Jesus, teach us how to be relevant to our culture. They don't say, Jesus, teach us how to end world poverty. But they do say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And by implication, I think that suggests that the disciples didn't know how to pray. They didn't know where to begin, that it was difficult for them. And what was the actual nature of that difficulty? Not not really sure. I don't know if they just didn't know what to say or how to go about it. Maybe it was a how-to thing for them. but. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we know it's more than just that because there's uh, another example of the disciples showing their difficulty to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? There's Jesus. He's in the garden. He's praying to His Father. He's about to go to the cross to lay down His life for our sins. And He asks His disciples to pray for Him, with Him. And He goes off and He prays by Himself and He comes back and what does He find? <laughs> the disciples sound asleep. And Jesus says to them, could you not watch with me just one hour while I'm about to go to the cross? Could you not pray with me for that limited amount of time? And they don't say this, but the answer is no. We couldn't. We're tired. It's been a long day. We're worn out and they fell asleep. Prayer is difficult. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture, the difficulty in Prayer. Now, for you, you find it difficult for various reasons. It might be because you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. I hope this sermon series will help you with that. And it could be also, though, that you're worn out. Just like the disciples, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're busy people. And you get in your room and you sit down and you start to pray and you close your eyes and it just lulls you into sleep. I want to encourage you this morning, friends, that God knows that we are but dust. The Scripture says that. He knows that there is weakness in us. In fact, in the depiction of the uh, disciples sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes to them and he says the Spirit is willing. It's like his way of saying, look, I know inside you want to pray. I know you want to do the right thing, but the flesh is weak. Your flesh, your body is weak and it's hard to pray. Jesus knows, God knows it's difficult. So I think we can take comfort in that. And yet, that is not an excuse for us to wave the white flag and give up on the pursuit of prayer. The the scriptures are plain. That prayer is commanded to us. As God's people, we are to be praying people. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Some parts of the Scriptures are hard to understand. These are not. (laughs) Pray regularly. Now, what does it mean without ceasing? Okay, that begs a little further reflection. We won't get into that in much detail. It's just to be in a prayerful spirit all the time. And if we look back here to the book of Luke, notice in verse 2, When Jesus gets ready to instruct his disciples, he says to them, when you pray, when you pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He doesn't say if you happen to be a praying person, if that's what you happen to do. That's not what he says. It's when you pray, the assumption being that his disciples are going to be praying people. So the scriptures tell us, pray. It's a command. And to not pray is a sin prayerlessness is a sin. The Bible says, do not commit adultery. If you do, that's a sin. The Bible says, continue steadfastly in prayer. If you don't, that's a sin. I mean, so this is, this is significant. God knows our weakness, and yet at the same time, the commands are clear that we need to work through the difficulty of prayer. Now, I want to just pause here to reflect on what, in our Present day and age might cause more difficulty than in past ages. I do think we live in kind of a unique time with unique challenges. I mean, what we're seeing here in the scriptures is that prayer has always been difficult. So it's it's not just unique to our day and age, but there are certain things in our day and age that I think do present unique challenges to us in being prayerful people. And part of it is just we live in this completely distracted, visually oriented, connected age, and that is unlike any other time in history, and I do think it presents new challenges to us as we seek to pray. We have so many opportunities for distraction and entertainment. We have a phone in our pocket that we can always pull out and look up whatever we want and watch whatever we want for as long as we want, and that is An alluring temptation, and I join you with that as well. It's difficult. Uh, There's a book out by a guy named Cal Newport. It's called Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And Cal Newport here encourages us not to get rid of our phones. He's not saying that we shouldn't use phones. But he's encouraging us to minimize our use of them. Uh, He's not even a believer, but he offers a lot of warnings here about the use of smartphones in our day and age. He says the single biggest factor shaping our lives right now are our phones. That's a huge statement. More than anything else going on in your life, what is shaping you more than anything is your phone, the temptation that it provides, the alluring attraction that it is to always get it out Look at it. And so Cal Newport warns. He says, We should be digital minimalists. We should minimize the amount of time that we use our phones. And so he says this because digital minimalists spend so much less time connected than their peers, it's easy to think of their lifestyle as extreme. But they would argue that this is backward. What's extreme is how much time everyone else spends staring at their screens. So, friends, Phones are a blessing. I use my phone frequently. (laughs) There's many practical good uses of our phones. But friends, if you don't control your phone, your phone will control you. And the more that your phone controls you, the more difficult it will be for you to pray. It's just a temptation all the time. So difficult already to get in your room alone. Made more difficult. Our connected age. So the difficulty in prayer, I just want to raise that awareness, something that we're all kind of struggling with. But let's move on to the second point here, which is the manner of prayer. <clears throat> the, the manner of prayer. What, what does it look like <clears throat> um, when, when we pray? And so let's go back to Matthew now, and we'll spend the rest of our message here looking at Matthew 6. A little more detail here in Matthew's account. And Jesus <clears throat> talks to us here, uh, about the place that you pray, and the words that you say; those two things. The pra- the place that you pray, which is in verses five and six, and the words that you say, verses seven and eight. So, <clears throat> looking at Matthew six, verse five, Jesus says, "When you pray, again, not if you pray, but when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites." So, who are the hypocrites? Well, here Jesus is referring to the Pharisees. So these would be uh, people inside the community of faith. We might say, you know, religious people, or to update it to today, that's people inside the church. Um, but these are people who, in particular, like to pray in such a way that they turn it into a performance, And they want to pray out loud where everybody can see them. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. They want to be noticed. They're praying for the sake of their own reputation. They want to give the impression that they're very pious, holy, righteous people. And they want attention from others for their spirituality. And so Jesus says, don't be like them. Instead, and he gives us this very clear direction, he says, when you pray, um, verse 6, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Go find a private place, shut the door, be by yourself, pray in secret, let it be just you and God. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is prohibiting um, public prayer it's not saying that you can't pray unless you're in a room with a closed door because you know we have plenty of other prayers in the scriptures where people pray in environments different than that although to have a place to pray is a good thing a place that you regularly go Jesus had that scriptures tell us that he had certain places that he liked to go do you have a place do you have a place where you like to go to pray. Um, I don't see Pam Navarro here, but she'll tell you about her prayer room. She has a whole room set apart in her house where she goes specifically to pray. Depending on your living condition, it might be harder to find a place, but I would encourage you to find a place, a comfortable place, a place where you can be alone and pray. But Jesus' point here is not to say you got to be in a room with a closed door. It's more about the attitude of the heart. Prayer is not about looking good. For these hypocrites, their reward, Jesus says, has already been received by them because people are looking at them and giving them applause and thinking they're really holy people. So they're not getting any other reward. But what Jesus is saying is go into a private room so that your reward is not anything outside of what you're doing. In fact, your reward is being in the presence of your Savior. That's the reward. That's why you pray. You don't care who notices. You don't care what credit you get. You want to commune with God. You want to take hold of Him. You want to draw near to Him. And that's why you pray. Now, that can be out while you're walking in the neighborhood or behind closed doors, but in any case, the motive, the attitude of the heart is what Jesus has in mind here. I think prayer is a great test of faith, maybe more so than any other discipline of the Christian faith. Prayer is a test of faith. Calvin says it's the chief exercise of faith. Why would he say that? I think it's because, you know, think about it. You don't get any immediate result from prayer. I I suppose there are some isolated exceptions where you pray and immediately you get an answer. But not typically. You pray, you don't get your answer. You pray, you come out of the room, you don't have some thing that you can now present to everybody as a finished product that is the result of your prayer. You don't get applause and approval from anybody. You don't get anything outside of the very task of just praying yourself. That's why it's the chief exercise of faith because it's just you and God and the reward you're seeking is communion with him. I love this from Robert Murray McShane. What a man or a woman or a child is on their knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That's the test, really, of your spiritual life. Do you commune with God? And do you seek Him as His own reward to you? So Jesus warns us against being like the hypocrites who are outwardly performing to get attention. But He goes on <clears throat> regarding the manner of prayer and gives us some instruction about the words that we say, not just the place that you pray, but the words that you say. So verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So now here's a different group of people that Jesus is contrasting proper prayer with. It's not the hypocrites, those inside the church, it's Gentiles, those outside the church. The, the typical unbeliever, that's the reference to the, the Gentiles. They're not part of the community of faith, but, well, apparently in that day they still prayed. Uh, in fact, a survey in 2004 came out and found that 30% of atheists admit to praying at least sometimes. People who deny the existence of God, and yet they still feel this inclination to pray. I think it's just a natural instinct for all of us as Creatures made in God's image. And so here you have Gentiles. They're praying, but their problem is not really to be noticed. Their problem is they think they're going to be heard for their many words. <laughs> they, they, they think that through their empty phrases and um, some kind of meaningless repetition, just saying the same things over and over again or using certain flowery phrases, or perhaps they thought of prayer as kind of a magical incantation, you know, like saying abracadabra to open up the door of the cave or something that they thought if they say certain words in prayer, they'd get what they'd want. Sometimes actually Christians can do the same thing, you know, with the phrase in Jesus' name. Sometimes we think, well, we'll just tack that on at the end and that'll make sure that I get what I want. <laughs> you know, I just, I'll just say it. I don't mean it. I don't even think about it, but it's a meaningless repetition And God will certainly be moved by this. That's not the way God operates. That's not the way he responds to prayer. And Jesus is warning against this. Meaningless repetition is not going to impress God. What God desires when you come into prayer is that you pray from the heart. And even when you pray from the heart, you can pray the most simple prayer. And God can hear it and respond to it. God is not impressed by your theological education and by your eloquence when you come to him in prayer. Your prayer can be so simple, so small, and yet be so beautiful in the sight of God. Let me give you an example of that. Luke chapter 18. Remember that story of the tax collector and the Pharisee? And they're both there at the temple, and the Pharisee is saying, oh God, you know, I thank you so much, I'm not a bad guy like this person and that person, thank you that I'm a really good person, I'm a very righteous person, I sure thank you, I'm not like this tax collector over here, so much better, and thank you for making me so good, God. That's, That's his prayer, and the tax collector stands at a distance and just looks up to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. That was the extent of his prayer. Not a lot of words, wasn't fancy, wasn't eloquent, but Jesus said, that's the guy who went home justified. That's a prayer pleasing to me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a beautiful prayer. What a powerful prayer. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you gone to God and said, have mercy, be merciful to me, I am a sinner? Have you done that from the heart? That's the first prayer that anyone must utter if you want to be a Christian if you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's where it begins. That's the start of the Christian life. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a cry of helplessness, and that's what makes a prayer acceptable to God, acknowledging your helplessness before him and calling on him for mercy. So, the place you pray, the words you say, um, have mercy on me, a sinner, that's that's a good prayer, and you should continue to pray that. But We would hope that as you grow in your faith that your prayer life deepens and matures and you pray about more than just that, and that's what Jesus goes on to tell us, and this is our third point, the content of prayer. And so Jesus now instructs us as to the the kinds of things we should say, the the topics that we should be concerned about as we pray. So if you look at verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this disciples, you asked me to teach you how to pray, here's how you pray. I mean, what a valuable passage, right? Do you not know how to pray? Do you struggle to pray? Here it is, clear direction for how to pray. Pray like this. I don't think Jesus means you got to use these words precisely all the time. Again, we have many other prayers in the scriptures that are acceptable to God. I think what Jesus is doing, he's given us a form, a pattern that we should follow with some regularity in our lives. So, we're going to run through this here real briefly, consider what these phrases mean. Um, this prayer, I think we can break into two parts. Uh, the first verses uh, 9 and 10 are kind of, uh, I could say, vertical prayers, you know, with looking up to God. And verses 11 and 13 are more horizontal, more concerned with personal needs and the needs of others. So, Prayer broken into two parts, so let's consider that first part, vertical, toward God. Here's how you pray. Here's how the prayer can begin. Our Father. Our Father. So notice where the prayer begins, looking upward to God. And that is a challenge, I think, to a lot of us who, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we just immediately think about us and our needs and what we want, and we go to him and plead, but Jesus says, no, fix your eyes first of all, on God and who He is, and call Him your Father when you pray. And of course, we call God God, but notice it doesn't say our God in heaven. It's our Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is God is more than just like a cosmic force or an inter, uh, impersonal deity. He is our Father. He he is the one who has adopted us into His family by grace. You go to Him as a son, as a daughter. You go to Him knowing that you're part of the family. You go expecting to be warmly received and welcomed into His presence. That's the way a good father welcomes his children. And that's the attitude we should have. Our Father who is in heaven. So, now we realize who that father is, where he is. He's the transcendent, all-powerful, exalted God who is running the universe. The all-powerful, majestic, glorious God in charge of all things. And he is the one that you get to call your father. So just think of that. That that's, should be your mindset when you come to God. You're a father who cares for me, but you're in heaven, which means you're all-powerful and able to do anything our father in heaven it goes on hallowed be your name hallowed not a word that we use a lot <laughs> today it just means holy holy be your name may your name be set apart your name that is your reputation what people think of you god let that be something that is revered and honored In the church, first of all, in the way God's people respond to their Father in obedience and sacrificial commitment, but also in the world. This is a prayer that the name of the Father would be revered in all the world, that all the people who are living dead in their trespasses and sins, totally unimpressed with God, would have their eyes opened to behold the glory of who God is and the grace of his gospel, and that they would bow their knee and worship him. May his name be hallowed, holy, set apart. And he goes on, verse 10, your kingdom come. We call for God's kingdom to come, the the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. May his kingdom spread over the whole globe. Come, kingdom. This is not a prayer for Lesser kingdoms, it's not a prayer for the kingdom of the USA or the kingdom of the PCA or the kingdom of wokeism or the kingdom of Trumpism or the kingdom of capitalism or the kingdom of socialism. It's the kingdom of God, which is different than all of those and much better than all of those highly exalted above all of those. And the way that kingdom comes is when the gospel is proclaimed, disciples are made through the agency of the local church. That's how the kingdom comes. That's our primary work. That's what we should be praying for. Come, kingdom, ask God for that in your prayers. And then he goes on, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, Lord We pray that your desires, that your purposes would prevail. We know that it prevails in heaven. We know that everything God uh, wants happens in heaven. What we want is what happens in heaven to be happening on earth. We want God's will to be done. We want God's will even more than we want our will. This might be the most challenging thing to pray. What you're asking is that God's desires trump your desires. That God's purposes prevail over your purposes. You're praying that you would put your desires second to God's desires. We all have interests, desires in our family life, in our professional life, in our ministry life. But are you ready to say, whatever happens, I want what God wants more than I want what I want? God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not there for you to give him three wishes that he accomplishes at your bidding. We are to pray for his will over your will. So, that's the vertical part of the prayer. Looking toward God, asking for these things. And so then it moves to a horizontal. That is praying for ourselves, praying for others, praying, I guess we could say, maybe for more earthly concerns rather than heavenly concerns, and notice where it goes to verse 11, a very, very simple prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give me what I need. Give me my basic necessities. Uh, you know, we don't think about praying for this so much because we always get our daily bread in the United States in the 21st century. But hasn't always been that way for people in history. is isn't always that way for people in other parts of the world But God still wants us to pray this as a sign of our dependence upon him. Give me my necessities. I think he means not just food, but shelter and clothing and transportation. Provide what I need, Lord. But only what I need. This isn't a prayer for luxuries. This isn't a prayer for an enormous house. This isn't a prayer for a huge retirement package. That's not what Jesus is instructing. Prayer for my daily bread. It's a humble prayer. It's a simple prayer. Pray for my daily bread. I'm just praying for what I need today. <laughs> Tomorrow will take care of itself. But provide for me what I need. This shows us here that God is concerned not just about our spiritual needs, but our physical needs too. He cares for our physical needs. So having pray, prayed <clears throat> for our physical needs, Jesus goes on to talk about our spiritual needs. Our greatest physical need right, is daily bread, food, pretty big need. (laughs) Then he goes on to our greatest spiritual need. Do you know what your greatest spiritual need is? That your sins be forgiven. That you be pardoned before God. And so verse 11, forgive us our debts. This is your greatest spiritual need. And you are to call upon God to offer forgiveness to you, to pardon your sins. They all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need pardon. We need those sins to be washed away. We need to know that our guilt can be removed and the shame can be taken away from us. And the only remedy for that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so right here in the Lord's Prayer, we have the gospel. Forgive us our debts. The scriptures are clear here in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So ask for forgiveness. If you've never asked for forgiveness for your sins, you, you need to do that. Again, that's the way you become a Christian. But even after becoming a Christian, this should be a regular part of our prayers, as we do every Sunday here at New Life. Confessing our sins, looking to the gospel for pardon. But then he goes on, forgive us our debts, verse 12, as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who have offended, transgressed against, and sinned against us. Now, be careful here. I don't think Jesus is saying that your forgiveness from him, God, is dependent upon your forgiveness of others. You don't earn forgiveness from God by forgiving others. But your willingness to forgive others is evidence that you know the grace of the gospel. It's evidence, it shows that your heart has been touched by the forgiveness that you have received. Nothing shows that better than how you respond when someone offends you. Al Mohler, I think, puts this pretty well. It is simply impossible to experience the richness of God's grace and remain a stubborn, obstinate, cold-hearted person. Those who truly know the forgiveness of sins forgive others. You might say that's hard to do. That's why you should be praying about it. That's why Jesus tells you to pray about it. Ask him to give you the grace to forgive others as he has forgiven you. The prayer then concludes, verse 13, lead us not into temptation. We've received pardon from past sins, so now we pray for protection from future sins. Just a prayer for empowerment to be obedient to God to avoid temptation. If you don't entertain sin, you're probably not going to commit sin. (laughs) That's the logic. Protect me from the temptation so that I don't disobey you, God. And the weapon against that also here is prayer, praying that God would protect you from that temptation and then lastly deliver us from evil. And that just kind of brings us full circle to what I said at the very start of this sermon, that this is a spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. Your enemy would love nothing more than to keep you off your knees. And the way you do battle with the enemy is through prayer. Slay him through prayer. One more thing I want you to notice here about this prayer. Do you notice the pronouns all throughout this prayer? They're all plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts. Lead us not into temptation. There's a corporate nature to this prayer. The challenge is our individualism, where we're always thinking about prayer as God meeting our needs. This is in the context of praying, not just for your needs, but the needs of your church, local, church, universal. You're part of a family. You're part of a group. And we should always pray with that in mind. We'll touch on that more throughout the course Uh, of this series so that's the content uh, the pattern the form of prayer i would just encourage you to use this as a template for your prayers if you haven't already i mean this is something i've begun to do lately over the last several weeks been praying through this in preparation for this series it's a very rich way to encounter god just going through this one line at a time allowing the spirit to move you to pray for things related to each of these lines and if you want to know you're in the will of God in your prayers, pray as Jesus taught you to pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer. So, we're going to conclude here this morning by reciting the Lord's Prayer together, and we'll do that throughout this sermon series. I need to make mention of one thing, though, is that you'll notice when we recite this prayer that uh, the very last line of this prayer is actually not in either Matthew's or Luke's account. So why is that? And the reason why this line, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is not in here is that it's, it's missing in a, a lot of the ancient manuscripts. And so the more recent translations have, have left that out. But I think we don't need to be hesitant to say it. It's a very biblical line. It's keeping with the theme of the whole prayer uh, entirely appropriate to recite Um, and so let's not hesitate to do it so why don't we stand Um, Joe you can come forward you want to get us ready for the closing song and uh, let's pray this prayer together our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread